When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio. And this is episode number 43, Dr. Sylvia Terra and the Secret Life of Fat. When it's dinner time, I got something you should try. It's crunchy, green, and yummy, and it's about to blow your mind. It's low on calories, and it looks like mini trees when you're having dinner with me. Broccoli. I am your host, Dr. Yami board-certified pediatrician, food-for-life cooking instructor, health and wellness coach, and passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, behavior change, and motivation so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope you keep coming back as a regular listener. You can find more of my work, including health and wellness videos, at Veggie Fit Kids on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers, and happy Sunday. I hope you've had a fabulous week, and I am so happy to be back with you. So this week's interview and guest is just so fascinating. I loved reading her book, also titled The Secret Life of Fat, and just hearing all about not only how fat is harmful to us, but how fat benefits us, because we hardly ever talk about that. We hardly ever talk about why we need to have fat, why we have fat in the first place, and especially females, why it's important that we have at least a minimum amount of body fat so that we can reproduce. 
So this book is really great. I hope that after you listen to this interview that you go grab yourself a copy and read it yourself. And I really hope that you get a lot out of this interview and what we talked about, all of the benefits, different ways that you can shed excess fat if something if that's something that you're interested in. Before I tell you more about Dr. Tara, I want to remind you to please subscribe to my podcast. If you haven't already, please rate and review it. That helps me a lot. It helps more people find my podcast as well. And also, if you get a chance, check out Veggie Fit Kids on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, check out my videos, and of course, share this podcast with others if you feel like you've gotten a lot out of it. So let me tell you more about Dr. Tara. Sylvia Tara was driven to research fat, science, and lifestyle after she finally got fed up with eating less and exercising more than her slimmer friends throughout her life. Her experiences told her there was more to weight loss than just calorie in, calorie out. As a biochemist, she was driven to get to the bottom of fat's mysteries and the reasons it vexes us. In her best-selling book, The Secret Life of Fat, she reveals the complex biology of fat, how it resists loss, and what it means for each of us. Dr. Tara holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego and an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She was a consultant with McKinsey & Company and has worked at the world's largest biotechnology companies. This is a great interview. I hope that you enjoy it and that you share it. And before we move on to the interview, I just want to remind you that no matter how much fat you have or what body fat percentage you are, if you eat a healthy diet, especially whole foods, plant-based exercise, have good lifestyle habits. It doesn't matter what size your body is. You can still be healthy. You can still feel amazing. So really the first step is just habits. And let's start to shed some of the pressure that society has on us to be a certain size and have a certain figure. We are going to delve into some of these topics in the podcast, but that's just something that for me is very important to share with everybody. So let's listen to this fun conversation. It's crunchy, green, and yummy, and it's about to blow your mind. It's low on calories, and it looks like mini trees when you're having dinner with me. Broccoli. Dr. Sylvia Tara, author of The Secret Life of Fat. Thank you so much for being on Veggie Doctor Radio today. It is such an honor to have you as a guest. Great. Thank you. It's great to be here. I was captivated by your book. It is such a beautifully written book that really reads like a novel in some ways. It just really keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's a page turner. I loved it so much. I'm so happy to hear that. I know science can be quite thick and boring sometimes, so I tried to use stories of patients and doctors and scientists to keep it interesting. So I'm glad you uh, you took that away from the book. Yes, you did a great job. But I want to start with why did you become so interested in this topic of fat? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I struggle with fat like so many people do. I gain weight very, very easily. I watch people all the time. They can eat what they want. They don't exercise much and they're, they don't get as fat as I do. It's very frustrating. And I had this, you know, I observed this for a long time. I tried a bunch of diets. I didn't lose as much weight as other people did. And uh, 
you know, I finally decided that, you know, I have to understand my fat. My fat's behaving differently than the way other people's fat is, is reacting to, to exercise and diet. And I need to know why. And I thought, you know, instead of reading, um, you know, just reading someone else's diet approach, you know, or their philosophy, I'm, I need to know for myself. And I'm a scientist, so I had the tools to really dig in. So for about five years, I read almost all the scientific literature on fat. I think I pulled about a thousand articles. Um, I interviewed around 50 scientists about their, their research on fat. And what I found out was so surprising, so shocking, that I thought I have to capture this in a book for everybody. Um, it turns out fat's not just fat. Um, fat is an organ and your body protects it when you try to lose it. And there's all kinds of individual um, aspects of fat. We don't all have the same fat, depending on your genetics, depending on your age, your gender, hormone levels, all these things. You could have a really hard time losing fat or an easy time. And I thought, wow, this is going to help a lot of people who I know are like me. They have a trouble you know, managing their fat. So I decided to, you know, write it up in a book and share it. And I, I think it has helped a lot of people. So I'm really happy about that. Oh, and it's just fascinating work. So I'm grateful for what you've done. We tend to demonize fat though, right? Especially as females, we don't want anything to do with fat. We don't want fat in our bodies. Stay away from fat in the diet. Well, you know, there's some recent trends that are opposite, but in many ways, fat serves us. And so can you talk about the ways that fat can benefit us in ways that it might even be necessary for our health? Oh, fat's an integral part of your body. It's so important for your health and for nature. And it is ironic that we tend to hate fat and want to get rid of it at all costs. So, so fat, you know, we, we have stem cells in our bodies that can actually create fat, you know, even without overeating. That's how important fat is. Usually stem cells are, you know, they're able to reproduce tissues that are critical for your body so that, you know, they can uh, exist and you can use them. And, and fat is one of those tissues that's critical. So fat, um, you know, it produces a number of hormones that our body depends on. It's not just hoarding calories. Fat produces a hormone called leptin. Leptin has vast effect all over our bodies. It controls our appetite, our metabolism, um, our bones, even our brain size is dependent on leptin, which fat produces. It, it's so ironic. Who would think that? Um, and then also our reproductive system is dependent on our fat too. Fat also produces estrogen. In fact, as women start to age and their ovaries uh, decline, they start to rely on their fat for estrogen. And it's one hypothesis about why middle-aged women have trouble losing fat. Your body's actually depending on it for this estrogen now. Um, bone strength uh, depends on your, on your fat too. For teenage girls, particularly when they try to get really thin, they get more brittle bones. Um, they break easier. And you see this with people with anorexia nervosa too. Another interesting thing is uh, fat through leptin affects wound healing, believe it or not. People with very low fat levels don't heal as quickly. Their immune systems are also not as strong. So you can't even believe what your fat is important for. Um, not only is it holding some extra calories for us, it's actually interacting and communicating within our bodies all the time in a multitude of different ways. And it's because fat is this important that your body has ways of protecting it. So when you try to lose it, it sends a signal you know, fat can actually, it, what happens is that as you lose your fat, you get less leptin because fat produces leptin. When you start to lose your fat, you have less leptin in your body. Your body really strongly reacts to this. One thing that happens, your appetite will go through the roof because when we have, you know, our normal level of fat, we're overall satiated, but when you lose fat, it's a signal to your brain that something's wrong, start eating, you're losing fat. In fact, people who've lost about 20% uh, of their weight or so, um, they get more obsessive about food as well. 
Like they'll, they'll think about it more, they'll react more to it. Um, they'll have more anticipatory response to food. It's a whole different way of being. And not only is your appetite bigger, your metabolism is lower as well. And so uh, leptin binds with our muscles. And when we have less leptin, your body will revert to more efficient muscle usage, meaning we're, we're using less energy as well. Mm -hmm. And so you have a higher appetite, you're burning about 22% fewer calories than when you haven't lost weight. So your fat's getting ready to come back. And it's all these ways that um, your body is trying to put the fat back on that you lost because fat is so important. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, I read your book a few months ago. I read it again this past weekend. And one of the things that came to my mind, one of the reasons I'm really glad you wrote this book and wrote the benefits of fat and why we actually need fat is the importance of fertility for women. Mm -hmm. And when I first read your book, I just came up with this image of a warrior woman because this is how I see myself. I'm, I'm five foot nine, I have high muscle mass, but believe it or not, I'm actually high fat too. So between 35 and 37% body fat. And I just think of my ability to be fertile, to survive famine, breastfeed my babies, and fight off tigers, you know? So I just think of like this amazing ability of the human body to survive. Yes. And, and that made me feel, almost made me feel empowered. And mm -hmm. in your book too, and we'll talk about this later of, you know, it's not about hating the fat. It's not about wanting to all go away, but working with it. How can we both get the advantages of being, especially for females, these warrior woman females that can make it through famines and breastfeed babies, but also maybe get the shape that we want for our modern society. But it, it takes me on to the next question, which is what everybody wants to know, and you've, you've touched upon it a little bit, is why is it so difficult to shed fat? When we lose fat, um, we do lose leptin because fat produces leptin. We get less leptin when we, when we lose fat. And then it sends your brain into overdrive. You get very hungry, you get obsessive with food. Um, you want to eat more. We also have a lower metabolism after we lose fat. So people have lost about 20% um, of their weight or so. They actually are losing or using rather 22% fewer calories than people who are naturally at that weight to begin with. So say someone was 170 pounds and they lost 20 pounds to get to 150 pounds. And you compare what they're eating to somebody was at 150 pounds naturally, never had to lose weight to get there, it was just always at 150. The person who lost weight to get to 150 pounds now has to eat 22% fewer calories than the person who's naturally at 150 pounds to begin with. And that's because our metabolism is lower after we lose weight. It's really important to keep this in mind because people think once they lose weight, they can eat like everyone else at that weight, and that's not true. Your weight is trying to, your fat is trying to come back, and your body is designed in a way to help that fat come back. And this effect, um, burning fewer calories, that can last for years. It's been studied for six years, um, and they've seen it last for six years. And they're not sure, this, the, the scientists, the researchers who work on this, are not sure that this effect ever really goes away. So there's a caloric penalty once you lose your fat. You do have to eat less than other people at that same weight. And so there's protective mechanisms like that that just are helping fat pack on. Um, you had mentioned women earlier. And you're just, I have a whole chapter on women and fat in The Secret Life of Fat. Women pack on more fat than men do. We're actually designed to have more fat. In fact, from the time um, we're even conceived, I mean, in the, in the uterus, actually, before we're born, girl babies have more fat than boy babies do. When we're born, we have more fat out the door. And we have something called nutrient partitioning, where more of our calories go into fat compared to men. 
Um, we don't lose fat as easily. Um, then, you know, they have more testosterone, higher lean mass, they, they lose it quickly. But interestingly, in women, we tend to utilize fat more than men in some cases when we're fasting, when we're exercising. And that seems like that's great that we're using more fat. The problem is that other hours of the day, when we finally start eating, living normally again, we're shunting more calories into fat. So that fat is coming back on us. And really nature has designed women to do what you said, to you know, outlive famines, outlive all kinds of you know, other adverse conditions by making sure we have adequate amount of fats. And, and actually reproduction can't even happen without adequate amount of fats. And I cover this too. And they see in impoverished countries where there's neighborhoods with, with malnourishment, those girls don't develop on time. They develop late. Um, and certainly when they're very underweight, like some athletes are, when they have very low fat levels or ballerinas, they actually don't menstruate regularly. So fat is a critical component of just coming into maturity, puberty, and, and developing normally and being able to reproduce. Mm -hmm. And you've shown in your book that this is a complex system, more than we probably even know at this point. There's being more and more discovered every day and these fascinating discoveries that these scientists have come up with is it our fault that we become overweight and obese in the first place? Well, I don't think all the processed food, easy food is helping us any. Um, and you know, you can, be, you can be overweight, so to speak, and still healthy. So I wanna make that point too. It really depends on where you store your fat. And I cover the topic of sumo wrestlers in the book. And you know, sumo wrestlers obviously are obese, but amazingly enough, they're metabolically healthy. They don't have high cholesterol. They're not prone to, to heart disease or diabetes. And it's because we have different kinds of fat. So we have what's called visceral fat, which is fat under your stomach wall. So when people have a big belly, you know, it's, 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 hunched, uh, it's really a, a big punch. That is visceral fat. And then the other kind of fat is the fat right underneath your skin. That's the fat in our buttocks, our legs, our arms. It can even be in your abdomen as long as it's under your skin, not underneath the stomach wall. That is a healthier deposit of fat. And so sumo wrestlers, they have subcutaneous fat, the fat that's right underneath your skin. They don't have a lot of visceral fat. Visceral fat is the one that's associated with heart disease, diabetes, um, high cholesterol, all those things. Interestingly, fat produces a hormone called adiponectin. And adiponectin actually guides the fat in your blood from our food and our diet out of the blood and into healthy fat, into subcutaneous fat right under the skin. And uh, exercise promotes the release of adiponectin from fat. And so sumo wrestlers exercise for about six to seven hours a day. They have lots of adiponectin. So even though they're eating in abundance, all of their nutrients, all the fat in their blood that, that they, comes from their diet is going into healthier deposits of fat. It's not going to visceral fat. And when they come off their, their exercise regimen, when they retire, they get unhealthy very quickly. Then they start to get, because um, they're not exercising, they don't have the same levels of adiponectin, they start to get more visceral fat. And then they do start to get diabetes and heart disease and other things. So you can be heavy. Um, you know, it's always best not to be excessively heavy, but if you have extra fat, if it's stored in the right places, you can actually go on in a healthy way. So um, exercise is one way to manage where your fat is stored. Um, you know, jogging, I think um, research I saw was about 20 miles a week, which sounds terrible, but it's not. It's about three miles a day. And if you're willing to do that, that increases levels of adiponectin. So uh, just, you know, something to think about. And so even though we, you know, we need our fat, it's really important, but also important for us to manage it, keep it healthy, keep it in safe deposits. 
That's super interesting. One of the burning questions that I have, because I, I am a geek on all of this and I love reading as much as I can about the subject. And one thing that I've heard said over and over again, and I have seen a few older studies on this, is the de novo lipogenesis, creating fat from excess carbohydrates. What can you tell me about that? Is it something that happens in humans or is it true like some of the experts say that very little of that happens in humans. So whenever you're eating a low fat, high carb diet, you don't have to worry as much about your excess calories being stored as fat. Well, I don't think I've, I've seen that anywhere. Are you, it, certainly we can create new fat cells all the time. That's why we have these stem cells that create new fat cells so they can hold the, you know, all, all the, the fatty acids that we produce when we're eating in excess. So um, I don't, I don't, um, in, in my understanding of it, everything I've read and know about fat, certainly if you're eating in excess, um, you're producing fat, your liver will produce more fat, more fat molecules, more fatty acids. All of those fatty acids need a place to stay. So the fat cells you have will get bigger, but not only that, you will produce more fat cells too. When people go from thin to being obese, it's not just because the fat cells they have are turning into soccer ball size, right? I mean, they're producing more fat cells as well. And our stem cells that we have that come from bone marrow um, that also live in our, in our fat tissue, they're capable of turning into muscle or fat or bone, depending on what it is our body needs. And they're designed to turn into the tissue that your body needs more of. So when you're working out and you're building muscle and you're building bone, those stem cells are turning into muscle and bone. Mm-hmm. When you're eating in excess and you're not exercising a lot, those stem cells will then convert to fat cells. Mm-hmm. So we're certainly producing more fat cells as our body needs to. So basically there's no magic calories that don't count. Not really, even on the very low carb ones. Um, and I know that's you know, for a while, uh, you know, Atkins was a big rage on the low carb. You can get away with more calories, but even when you're eating excess amounts of proteins that can still convert to, to fat, right? And so you, you have to watch it. Um, calories matter, but where you get your calories from also matters. Yeah. What's the most surprising thing that you learned during these five years of research, what was something that you're just like your jaw dropped and you're like, oh my God. I think that fat can control your mind, right? That was freakish. We all like to think we're in control and we're on top of everything. Um, I tell the story of one, one girl, an eight-year-old girl, girl named Layla who had defective fat. So her fat wasn't producing leptin like the rest of our, us, like the, our fat does. And because she had no leptin, she was constantly hungry and not in a normal kind of hunger. She had a voracious pathological hunger. Um, at one time, she, she broke into a locked freezer to eat frozen fish because her parents tried to, to stop her from getting food. So they were locking cupboards. They were locking the fridge. She broke in and it didn't even matter what she ate. She needed to eat. At one point, she went through the trash looking for food. She was so desperate to eat. And this was after she still was getting normal meals. She just had no, she had an unstoppable urge to eat is really what she had. And it took a long time. She was one of the first cases and before we even knew what leptin was, that fat was producing this hormone. Um, and they thought uh, her parents were blamed for it. She was blamed for it. And uh, even when they put her in the hospital at one point to control her eating, she continued to gain weight just at a slower pace. It was a real mystery. And so, you know, finally, when they, they discovered leptin, Jeffrey Friedman discovered leptin and, and noticed it was linked to, you know, it goes to the hypothalamus, it's linked to appetite. She had a test to see if she had leptin. And sure enough, she didn't have normal leptin levels. Um, she was very deficient. And that finally answered the question about why she couldn't stop eating. So, you know, we like to think we're in control. This could never happen. Our waiters are our own fault, et cetera. It's not always the case. 
and that link between you know fat levels and fat producing leptin and leptin controlling our thoughts and, and how we how we react to food that was really shocking um, the second shocking thing I think was around viruses that you can actually catch fat right so there's a virus called ad36 and uh, researchers have noticed that people who've ever carried this virus, they have a, almost a 30% higher chance of being obese or overweight compared to people who've never had the virus. And the virus works in interesting ways. It's almost insulin-like in which it causes the absorption of more glucose out of your blood. Um, it, can, it also promotes that the conversion of glucose to fat and then promotes more fat cells being created. It's really interesting. And so, um, you know, it's a thing like I know people who take metformin or they take insulin, they tend to gain weight with it. And it's having the same effect as that. And people who have it, they, they tend to be a little bit hungrier and they tend to be fatter as well. And I, I profile one patient named Randy in the book and very interesting. Um, he had the virus, uh, struggled with his weight for decades, never understood it. And finally got this diagnosis that he was 836 positive and it all starts to make sense. And I think once he had that knowledge, he was able to manage his weight because he realized he had to make more effort than more people do. He had to eat a little bit less and exercise more um, to, to stay at a normal weight. And he's in great shape now. But a big you know, takeaway from the book should be that we're all really individual. So, you know, for some people, it's really easy to manage weight. If, if we're, for others, people who have, you know, genetic predisposition, which I write about in the book too, um, or they have 80-36, say, or they're a woman, or they've been heavy in the past, so they've lost weight to get to the current weight. For all those types, weight loss is a much bigger effort. You have to watch what you eat constantly. You have to exercise. You can't go off the wagon as often. Um, so we're not all, all uh, created equal when it comes to fat. Which in a way can sound disheartening, but in the case of Randy that you talked about in the book and even of yourself, if you yeah. put the right mindset to that of like, well, there's still the laws of physics, even though the patient Layla seemed to defy the laws of physics. That was amazing. I was like, she was still gaining weight, even with like super low calorie diet controlled in the hospital. That was crazy. But, um, but we do, if we want to have the self-discipline and put ourselves into it, it still is possible. Um, so I have a question, something that you had mentioned earlier that you kind of touched upon is genes. How important is our genetics when it comes to fat? Yeah, it's, it's hugely important. And there's, there's whole populations, they have a, um, a predisposition to gaining weight. And I talk about the Pima Indians in the book, right? So yeah, that there's a population, um, you know, Pima Indians, they do centuries, you know, thousands of years really had lived this nomadic kind of life where they, you know, they farmed and they hunted and they lived off natural food. They were active and they ate the kind of low, low fat, low carb, uh, not low carb necessarily, but not processed food. And, you know, there's a population they studied in, in Arizona and another population that ended up in Maycoba, Mexico. And interestingly, the population in Phoenix, Arizona, they start to encounter Western settlers, you know, in the 1800s, and they start to adopt slowly their lifestyles of, of Caucasians. And as they did this, they started gaining massive amounts of weight, even though the Caucasians nearby on the same diet weren't gaining weight. And when they compared them to the uh, people in uh, Mekoba, um, those Pima Indians there, um, those Indians stayed thin. It's because they kept their life that they had. They were still farming. There were no cars. They were riding bikes. Um, they, were, they were hunting. They still lived off the land. And so even though those Pima Indians in Mexico were right next to people, Caucasians eating that same diet, they had a much different response to food. 
And so our genetics, um, you know, we can be predispositioned to gain weight. And the thought is that the Pima Indians had what they called a thrifty genotype. Through all these years they had, uh, they experienced a lot of famine. They were on the West Coast, you know, through deserts and through different areas. It was frequent famine for them. And so their genes developed in such a way that they hoarded calories once they finally had it. So their bodies were anticipating a famine that never comes in these modern times. And so they're hoarding away calories um, and they're getting fatter. And you know, this, this is seen in a number of different cultures actually. And even individual you know, variations, I write about a you know, couple of genes that we know about that, that are linked to fat. I mean, one is called FTO, a study was done in Britain and some children with a variation in this gene, they have a higher, um, a, a real higher uh, kind of attraction for heavier foods, so energy dense foods. When they let them take food from a buffet, they tend to uh, load their plate with muffins and candy and things like that. And it's, it's all kind of associated with this FTA, FTO aberration. So that causes a change in appetite. And there's another gene called IRS1 where people who have a certain variation of it, they pack away more fat than other people do. So they'll gain more fat. So just like, you know, we talked about gender, we've talked about you know, viruses, age has a big part too. Genetics is a part. And there's even, you know, racial differences there. So, you know, with African-Americans, I think they put fat in, in healthier places a lot. So buttocks and legs, places like that. Um, Caucasian women, uh, they have more visceral fat. And so you can see it even at, at very broad levels of the population. We're a little bit different in how we store our fat. Mm -hmm. You know, this helped me. I'm, I'm Eastern Indian and I'm, I'm guessing I've got the thrifty genotype. <laughs> and it explained to me why I'm packing on fat so easily. And so none of this is to discourage anybody. There's all kinds of reasons we might have a harder time. The big win in all of this is that at least now you know why that is, why you might be having a harder time. You don't have to blame yourself. It's not because you're not following a diet right. You don't have to give up on an effort to lose weight. You might have to ratchet up your effort. You might have to eat less than even what that diet is telling you. Um, I have to ignore people who say I'm, I'm under eating, but I'm starving myself. That's not true for me. It might be true for most, most people. My body requires a lot fewer calories than other people do. So individualize your diet to fit you. I use this book, The Secret Life, um, to really you know, understand where you might be on the spectrum, understand you know, based on your age, your gender, um, your race, your you know, genetic uh, predisposition, if, if uh, inheritance is any part of this, just figure out where you are on that spectrum and then increase or, or decrease your efforts you know, based on that. Certainly, I, you know, I'm married to someone who can eat all he wants and not gain a pound, right? <laughs> he's of Irish descent, he's male. I think he still fits into his college genes. He eats more than anyone you know, I've seen. And so you know, I'm on the opposite end of that. And, and at least now I kind of understand why. Yeah. Well, and you know, but if there were a famine right now, you'd probably survive longer than him. So <laughs> I think I could go for years. Yes. <laughs> but that's, that's the part that I want to point out is just that yeah. this thrifty gene hypothesis, what it means is that these were the changes in our metabolism over time that helped us survive, helped us make it. That's why there's almost 8 billion people on this planet, you know? So it's important to understand that our environment has changed dramatically from yes. what it was whenever this was changing in our bodies to allow us to survive and be almost superhuman in some ways, you know? So it is in a way kind of cool. So I want to know, is there an ideal number? So definitely we know that too low of body fat, especially for females, but even for males, too low of body fat is not beneficial, can affect fertility, can affect bones, those kinds of things. Too high of fat, we know, definitely can have metabolic consequences. 
But is there an ideal range there? That's something I didn't ever see in your book. Any specific numbers to help us know what is an ideal range for fat percentage? Yeah, so I think the guidelines given, it's about 25 to 31% for women and about 18 to 24% for men. But, you know, as, as I referred to like, you know, earlier, is that you can be heavier than that as long as your fat's in the right place. You can be a little thinner than that as, as long as you have a sufficient amount that, um, you know, your body has enough leptin, it has enough adiponectin and different things that you need. So there, there's a range on that too. Um, you know, I probably have, I don't know what, I'm probably on the higher side of that, but I, I, it's, it's healthy. My metabolic profile is fine. I think it's because I exercise a lot and hopefully my, my fat's in the right places right now. And one test you can do if you want to check for your visceral fat levels is a lie flat on the floor. And if your, your stomach flattens, then you probably don't have visceral fat. But when you lie on the floor, if you still have a big paunch on your stomach, then that is probably fat underneath your stomach wall that is now not dissipating and that's visceral fat. And then you should be worried. That is not good fat. So everything I just said about fat being important and we need an adequate level that doesn't you know, pertain to visceral fat that you want to get rid of. And so, you know, for that, again, um, exercise will work. Intermittent fasting is really powerful. And, you know, it sounds very scary to people, but basically you just stop eating at an earlier time of the day. So you can stop at three or four o'clock, make sure you get about 16 hours of fasting in. The same amount of calories in fewer hours of the day actually helps manage weight. So if you're eating 2,000 calories, if you spread it out all day versus within that restricted time frame, you'll be less healthy if you eat all day, especially right before bed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, try those things if you find you have visceral fat. Um, you know, diet is 80% of weight management, so try that first. And so, uh, you know, get your calories in and stop eating processed food. We talked about things are different now in nature and we're really designed for famine. We weren't really designed to have things like Velveeta, right? Mm -hmm. To have a lot of McDonald's and things like that. We were designed to have a lot of, um, you know, grains, a lot of fiber in our diet. That's what natural food is. We weren't really supposed to be having easy to digest calories. And, you know, I also write about the bacteria in our gut. That's an important part here. Um, some bacteria extract more calories out of food than other types of bacteria. I know salads are great. So whenever you can have a kind of fibrous food that gives your bacteria a run for the money and makes it hard for them to extract, a cal extract calories out of food, more is going to pass as waste. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're designed for. So kind of sounding paleo-ish here, um, but, you know, stay on natural food, cook your own food from, uh, you know, real, really good sources, um, and then eat salad. I, I have a giant salad every day. It's one way I manage my weight. Yeah, it could help you feel fuller too. So you don't feel like you're being deprived. And no, that's what I preach all the time is whole foods, whole foods, whole foods, whole foods as much as possible. And that also contributes to that thermic effect of food. And the more whole the food that you're eating, the more energy that your body requires to break it down and absorb it and process it inside your body. So that also gives you the advantage. When we're eating all these processed foods, it's way easier for our bodies to just like, whoop, just absorb it yep. and not have to not have to do much work to it. Right. One thing I wanted to ask about specifically intermittent fasting. I love intermittent fasting. I'm a big fan. I do use it for my coaching clients and talk to them about it. But more popularly, people when they practice intermittent fasting or the restricted feeding windows is that they tend to skip breakfast and then have lunch or dinner. But whenever you talked about doing it yourself, you just stopped earlier in the day. Is there a certain reason why you did it this way as opposed to just eating later in the day? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I know people who eat dinner um, instead. So they'll fast longer during the day. They won't eat anything till one o'clock and then they'll, they'll eat through the day and they'll stop at seven or something like that. Um, it just depends on your, your kind of, I think, schedule and, and family life and social life too. And for me, it's always been, I can't get through a day of work feeling hungry or feeling like I don't have something. So lunch to me is important to have. Mm-hmm. And so it just evolved in this way that lunch became my main meal. Um, I'll eat something at three o'clock, four o'clock again. And then I'll really not eat much at all after that. I might have a handful of nuts or something to tide myself over, but it became a natural rhythm for me. I do know people who, you know, like I said, they have dinner and they don't eat during the day. They're also in good shape and they do well that way too. So part of dieting, it's not just, you know, watching what you eat and exercising. You have to pick a plan that works for you forever, really. Because as I said, that whole caloric penalty where you have to eat less and be more careful after you lose weight, that could last forever. Mm-hmm. And so if you're on a diet where you don't really love it, it's really hard to stay on. It requires a lot of prep time and you don't have prep time, whatever the problem is. If a diet's not compatible with your life, you're not going to stay on it. You're not going to be able to stay. So for me, skipping lunch is hard. I, I have a hard time with that. It's just not going to work. Um, at the same time, I can't be eating five to seven meals a day, which some diets call for because then you're constantly eating and prepping for food just with my life that doesn't work. So pick something that works for your life as much as it does for your body. Awesome. You talk about your own story more at the end of the book and what you had to go through in order to lose those last few pounds. And you were just really determined, really adamant. So I wanted to talk about mindset and persistence. Yeah. I feel like you used your personality and you're being very goal-driven as an advantage because you're proud of that. You're proud of how you are. You're like, well, now that I have the information, I am motivated and, and I know what I need to do and fat is not going to win over, over me. So how important is mindset in, when we approach these weight loss goals? Yeah, it's critical, really. This weight, losing weight, it seems like it's trivial, but it's going to be one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life is to lose weight and keep it off. You know, it affects your mind. You get obsessive about food. You always feel like people are eating more than you are and you can't have that cake. Like There's this constant pull. We're, we're surrounded by food all the time. Our social lives, you know, going to restaurants, hanging out with people, gosh, just going to Costco, there's samples everywhere, right? We're surrounded by food all the time. Um, and so, you know, how you think about food, how you think about yourself, you will have to restrain yourself. And I know even these diets that say, oh, eat all you want, be, you know, be happy. You're still restraining yourself. It's like Weight Watchers is using a point system. You have to count your points. You know, the low carb diets, you can't eat bread. There's always some restraint in a diet. That's how we stay healthy. If it wears you out, you know, again, if it doesn't match with your lifestyle or you just don't feel up for it or you don't, you know, it's too much stress, you don't want to deal with it, that's going to affect you. So again, picking the right diet, but then also getting into the right mindset. Um, You know, don't start a diet when you're in a really stressful situation because you are adding to that. You are adding more restraint onto yourself, what you can do. If you're in the middle of a relationship issue or some other thing in life, not a great time to start because this will take emotional reserve to get on it. And I think, you know, as, as you said, when I finally learned all of this and I have a kind of, I guess, a warrior part of me too, where, you know, I'm going to win now that I know this, there's no way something's going to win over me. Um, it really helps me. And that's a, the way I really got down, you know, to the, all the weight loss that I wanted. I've been able to maintain it you know, for the most part. And you know, even if I diet now, I get back on it. I'm on the scale every day and it's not going to win. It might stay there. It might plateau It might because then these ups and downs will happen where you're not winning for a while. And if you're not in the mindset where I'm eventually going to see, you know, see this through and win, it's so easy to go back to your old life and just say, I give up. I tried and I give up. 
I gave up. And as we get older, weight loss is even harder. It doesn't come off easier, easy, easily. It takes a really long time. It plateaus here and there. I mean, it can take years to lose. It almost did take me a year to lose 10 pounds at one point. It's, it can be that stubborn. So I, I do have a chapter on the psychology of losing weight, all these kind of mental tricks you can use, how to improve your resolve. There's something called temptation bundling, which I like, which is if you have to do a, a, an activity that you don't like, like exercise, pair it with something you do like. Right. And so for me, I rock out when I exercise, right? I have loud music on, really juvenile music that, you know, it's, it's a guilty pleasure. And I pair it. And that's how I, I get myself to stay on the treadmill or whatever it is I'm doing. Um, you know, and sometimes because I restrict my hours of eating and I restrict what I eat, when I do eat, it's, it's whatever I want. It's, if I'm going to have a salad, it's the most luxurious salad you can have. There's no ingredient too expensive for that salad, right? And so I compensate in that way. So try temptation bundling. Um, you know, there's also goals you can set up for yourself over time. Um, and there's a, the element of stress. There is a lot of research about how stress affects our resolve. And I think I talk about one where they have hand grippers. Uh, there's an experiment where they have to hold hand grippers for a long time. And, uh, you know, people who take a break, a nice break, where they get to watch a nice movie or, or reward themselves in that way, they do much better at holding the hand grippers after the break compared to people who, who don't get a break or they have to watch, do something they don't like during that, that break. So that reward, that self-love is important. Also, beware of dichotomous thinking. This is the last point I'll bring up. And that's where, you know, if I didn't do things perfectly, I failed. Mm -hmm. um, women are really, uh, you know, just the statistics of it, women are more predisposed to this than men. So if I had chocolate, boy, I'm a failure. I might as well just eat what I want for the rest of the day because I've now failed on my diet. It's a slippery slope and it leads you to come right off that diet and not get on. Um, and weight loss coaches at some of the more esteemed clinics, this is what they work on. It's a big part of what they do is getting people back on after they've come off and had a, you know, ice cream or some other transgression. Um, just get back on. We're all going to cheat sometimes. It's, who can't? I mean, you're in the middle of the world. You're going to have a birthday cake or something that comes up that you're going to have. It's no big deal. Just get back on the next day. You're not a loser. You know, you, you haven't failed at anything. It's just normal life. But make sure you get back on the next day. Don't keep making excuses every day for something like that. Yeah. And that persistence too, because as I read your story, I saw that you wouldn't give up. You would try different things, trial and error. Okay. This isn't working anymore. I'm going to add this, or I'm going to change this up a little bit. And I think what happens, a lot of people try one thing and maybe they get some success. It stops working and they're like, ah, okay, I give up, but you really have to be persistent and even when you do make a mistake or eat a little bit more or whatever, get right back on that horse and keep working at it. Yeah, I would suggest people keep a log. And that's what I did. It's like, what am I eating? What time am I eating? You know, how many calories was that? And did I exercise and what time? Mm -hmm. And you'll start to see trends. Like I noticed, um, surprisingly, there was some food I could get away with. I would eat it. And it was something that would make me gain weight. And I didn't, right? Mm. It's like chocolate was one of these things. I can have chocolate, but I can't have a chocolate cookie. There's flour and I'll gain weight. But you'll start to see patterns of what's working and what's not working. And, um, you know, I noticed certain foods, I wouldn't lose weight on those foods. And if I switched, you know, switched it or took them out, it would start again. So it'll also tell you when you need to ratchet up. If you've been in a big plateau on, on what you're doing for a while, you can add something in, either restrict the, the eating hours further um, or change the food or, you know, exercise more. Um, but you'll start to get ideas if you keep a food log. Mm -hmm. And that patience. Yeah. Well, at the beginning of the book, you talked about a time where fat was seen a little bit more positively, where women could have more voluptuous bodies and lean women actually were looking at ways of gaining fat and being able to 
maintain fat. I mean, this sounds like a dream world to me because I think I would be like cover model. But what what do you what do you think about body image and how important is that? Because you do talk about in your book how, in some ways, being a little overweight probably under 30 BMI, between that 25, 30 BMI, especially as you get older, can actually improve your longevity and your health in some ways. So where do we kind of try to balance this, our our current ideal in the media with leading a healthy, balanced life? Yeah, that's a good question. And you're right, early on, you know, around the time of the Civil War, fat was really praised. It was it was a great thing to have. It's because a lot of people, it was a time of poverty and destruction, and not, not everyone had adequate levels of food. And in that time, fat was seen as a status symbol. So there's a lot of social element to this, too. That started changing when the economy improved and everyone had access to food and people started gaining weight. Now what was rare was being thin, and this was considered a good thing. Um, so things change. And I think right now, um, certainly obesity, you know, is levels are high. We have food everywhere. So again, what becomes less attainable is being really thin of the six-pack abs. And that's what people want to sell you. Um, you know, this diet industry is huge. And it was a huge part of that, that tilt also um, from the Civil War into like the, the thin is in days. When, when thin became more popular, like around 1920 or so, that was the start of diet, the diet industry. And in the beginning, it was just hucksters and, you know, entrepreneurs that sold weird things like tapeworm eggs, things that were supposed to, dinitrophenol, which is a poison that increased, you know, uh, metabolism, really weird things came out, fat off soap, which is supposed to melt your fat. But that morphed into the diet industry we have now, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. And, and part of the key is to put out pictures of people really thin, really fit, you know, the six pack abs, muscle people, very low fat. And it's unattainable for some people unless you have an enormous all-day effort for it, and it might not be sustainable for you. And you actually don't need to look like that in order to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So think about what you want. If you want a body like that and are willing to do all the work, it's fine. And I do profile a woman bodybuilder in my book too. She did that. She wanted to have that, you know, that look. She wanted to compete in bodybuilding. I talk about the effort it was for her. It was an all-day affair. And if you have the time, effort, um, you, you want to make the effort for it, it's fine. If you're just looking to be healthy, get your fat into a healthier level in the right places, that's that's a different thing. And you don't need to have these images in front of you. You don't need to spend tons of money to have this. Um, you do need to watch where your fat is. You will need to exercise and you'll need to eat healthy. Um, Cooking is going to be a big part of that for you. And I think this is you know, one reason we're gaining weight because we're eating out more than ever before and there's more carbs and sugars in the food. But figure out what you want to be. And any of those things are fine. If you if you want the six-pack abs, you want to look like a model, good. If you just want, you know, you've had a couple of kids, now you want to get healthy again, that's fine too. Um, either end is fine, but there are different levels of effort and different social pressures for each. But I think if you're a little bit overweight, there's no reason. Don't let the diet industry say you have to have those six-pack abs in order to be healthy. That's just not the case. I love it. Yes. Thank you so much for that. Because I think it is true. If somebody wants a certain look and they're willing to put in the time and the effort because they specifically want to look that way, like you said, it's fine, but it doesn't necessarily make you healthier overall. You know, So I think that that's a very important thing to point out. Dr. Tara, what motivates you to do the work you do? I think I need to find the answer. 
right? If something's not working right, something's not adding up here, I am someone who has to find out why. And I feel confident enough that I can find the answer. It makes me pull out all the papers, makes me call people and find out you know, what's wrong. Why, did, why is this not working out? So that's a big part of it for me, just that burning question, right? And I think this is the kind of scientist trait is if you have a burning question and you need the answer, that's motivating. Awesome. And what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? Yeah, it's funny. I think when you're dieting or doing something else, you have to use everything you can, everything you got. And, you know, the one thing that I'm kind of proud of is the same thing I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed about. You know, one is that I, um, it's not a temper, but I can get angry and very persistent about it, right? And like, that's a bad thing normally, right? When you're raising kids, it's not a nice thing to get angry easily. Um, but when I'm dieting, it's a really good thing. And it, it comes out in that last chapter when I, I talk about this, this fat with fight and it's not going to win and I'm really persistent. That trait has carried me through so many different times in my life, um, you know, getting through college, um, losing weight, getting through any hard time I've had, that trait has carried me through. So use what you got. You know, if you're, if you're angry at your fat, that's fine. If you love your fat, that's fine. Use it and morph it in a way that helps you in your life. Oh, that's beautiful. It sounds like it has served you well in lots of areas in your life, especially since you have a PhD and do a lot of amazing work in that area too. So, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. I encourage my listeners to go out and read the book, The Secret Life of Fat. You will love it. Like I said, it reads almost like a novel in some ways. You'll be on the edge of your seat and you'll learn lots of great information. Dr. Tara, how can listeners connect with you? And do you have anything exciting coming up next? Yeah, sure. So you can connect on me um, on Facebook. So it's at Sylvia Tara, uh, PhD, or on Twitter at that same handle. And I do read messages that come to me on Facebook. So that works out fine. Um, I am working on a couple things. One is a course to go along with the secret life of fat. And I'm starting to look at more at the times that we eat and why that actually works. I think that's my next burning question is I don't get why that works. <laughs> so I need to understand what's going on, you know, with sleep and with times where we're, you know, abstaining. Why on earth is that working so well? So that might be next. Awesome. So maybe another book then? Yeah, I hope so. I can't wait. And I hope to have you back on the podcast after you have your next book. Thank you so much. I'll make sure that I put all of your information, your Facebook and your Twitter and all of that so that listeners can connect with you. And I hope that you have a plantastic day. Great. Thank you so much. It's crunchy, green and yummy, and it's about to blow your mind. It's low on calories and it looks like mini trees when you're having dinner with me. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next time. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the Broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocket surgeons music. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at Veggie Fit Kids on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, or you can email me at veggiedoctor at veggiefitkids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day.